The following is a message by Dr. David Van Drunen from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. The passage that we'll be reflecting on this morning uh, is 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 through 28. 1 Kings 3, 16 through 28, as we continue to consider the books of Kings on Thursday mornings. Let me read this passage for you. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. And I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me, while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, No, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman. And by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king. Because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Now the story that we have before us uh, this morning is uh, certainly one of the more memorable uh, stories that we find in the Old Testament. Uh, If someone was to say to you, Solomon and you were to instructed to think of one incident from his career, it may well be this one that would come to mind. It may be good for us, as we begin to reflect on this text, to remember why we have all of these stories in the Old Testament, through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, about all these kings and about all, uh, all of uh, their many deeds and uh, the... Um, Uh, the fate of the people of Israel under their leadership. One thing we must remember, a first and primary thing that these stories tell us, is they instruct us, they instructed Old Testament Israel about the king who was to come, the greater king who was to come, the true king that God's people needed. And of course, so many of these Old Testament kings 
by their disobedience to God's law, reminded us why we really needed that king, why none of these Old Testament kings were sufficient, were suitable to save God's people from their sins and lead them into everlasting righteousness. But in these kings, besides these these negative examples that they give us, we do find positive portrayals of our Lord Jesus Christ who was to come. And certainly we have, uh, there are no kings that do that more for us than David and Solomon. In David, in the accounts we have of him, we read about this man, the man after God's own heart, a mighty warrior before the Lord who also had this tender and merciful conscience, who failed in many ways, but in so many other ways, pointed us to and showed us and portrayed for us that greater king who was to come, who would one day be called the son of David. And yet Solomon also adds something to this picture that the Old Testament puts before us of our Lord Jesus Christ. And above all, what Solomon gives us is wisdom. For we learn that Solomon was a man of exceeding wisdom. In the first part of 1 Kings 3, immediately before the account that we just read, we read that Solomon, told by God that he can ask for anything he wants and it will be granted, asks for wisdom, not for long life, not for wealth, not for victory over his enemies. And God is pleased with his request and promises to him that he shall be a king wiser uh, than all of the other kings of this earth. There will be none to compare with him. And indeed, as Solomon and other biblical writers talk about wisdom uh, elsewhere in Scripture, they speak about wisdom in these great ways. You might think of uh, Proverbs chapter 8, which tells us that by wisdom, God created the world. Proverbs 8 also tells us that by wisdom, kings reign. And so surely, if the Old Testament is going to show us of this greater king to come, it must show us something of the wisdom of kings. And indeed, we have a very high and exalted picture of wisdom placed before us when we read in verses 8 and 9 of 1 Kings 3 of what Solomon asks for exactly. He says, Your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? This is pretty exalted. A king in his glory, presiding over a great multitude of people, showing them the way, guarding them, guiding them, judging among them. And just as we're primed to see wisdom in all its splendor, we come to verse 16, and we read, Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. And perhaps we're a little deflated. Wisdom is this great and exalted thing for governing a great multitude. And the first thing we read Solomon doing is now hearing a case between two prostitutes. What are two prostitutes coming and taking up the time of this great king who has this immense people that he has to govern? What is he doing bothering with two people who are standing outside of the law? who are standing at the outskirts of society, in fact, ought to be condemned by the Mosaic law for their conduct. 
two women who don't really deserve justice in the first place, for they have, it seems, uh, rejected uh, their place in civil society. And yet, as we are confronted with this rather surprising, the surprising situation of Solomon judging between two outcasts, two lawbreakers, perhaps we are also struck by the compassion, by the interest that Solomon has for the weak, for the undeserving, for those indeed who are the dregs of society. Later, when Solomon would be reflecting on the character of the righteous king in Psalm 72, he would say, May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, The king would be concerned about those who were outcasts. We might also reflect on what his father David did. When David was gathering together a band of men as he was on the run from Saul, do you remember what kind of men David gathered to himself? 1 Samuel 22, we read, Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became captain over them. David himself gathered the outcasts, those who were living on the edge of society. Not a likely band of men that you would gather to yourself if you wanted success, and yet here is who David gathered unto himself. And we remember, of course, that our Lord Jesus Christ caught the attention of the people and even gathered rebukes from the people because he was a friend of prostitutes, that he ate with tax collectors and sinners, those who didn't seem worthy enough, those who seemed to be on the outskirts of society, those who would be rejected by upright people. Not the sort of people that you would choose if you were to build a kingdom. And yet this is also good news for us, isn't it? If we remember what the Apostle Paul told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, this is good news. If God, if God's king is concerned about the outcasts, about those in distress, about lawbreakers. And so as we return to 1 Kings 3, of course, we've only just barely started this passage. But now that we have seen Solomon willing to hear the case of two prostitutes. Now we ask ourselves, what exactly is their case, and why do we bother hearing the details of this story? And as we begin reading through this account, we immediately meet a problem. And this problem is repeated for us three times, it seems, in verse 18, almost to the point that it doesn't really flow very well as we read it. On the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. 
She says three times, only us. Just so you know, Solomon, there was no one but us in the house. That's a problem. Because people are really only supposed to be convicted on the testimony of two or three witnesses. But it's clear that there will only be one witness for each side. There is not enough evidence here for the king to judge justly. And if anything, the problem is intensified. The problem isn't even as good as it seems at first. Because if we read what this woman continues to say before Solomon, it seems clear that there's not even one witness for her side. Because she was actually asleep during everything that transpired, if she's telling the truth. She's not even an eyewitness. She tells us what this other woman did, but of course, she wasn't even cognizant when this happened. She's reconstructing events from the evidence. There's really not even one good witness to back up her case. What's Solomon to do? How can a just judge issue a just verdict in this case? And it's interesting, after this woman, the first woman finishes her testimony, and they begin arguing with each other uh, in front of Solomon, at the end of verse 22 we read, Thus they spoke before the king. Just to remind us, This argument is going on before this great king, this wise king. The ball is put into his court. What are you going to do, Solomon? Thus they are arguing, and there's no good witness. Remember, there's no DNA test available to determine who's the parent. It is simply one person's word against another, and they are both untrustworthy witnesses. Witnesses whom we really don't have any reason to trust in a court of law. And as if to highlight the impossible situation that Solomon has been put in, notice Solomon's first words in verse 23. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. Solomon is, in a sense, stating what we have already learned. This is how it is. It's just one person's word against another. What is Solomon going to do? Well, in verses 24 and 25, he asks for a sword, and he does something, he says something, that certainly must have caught everyone off guard who was witnessing this. He says, cut the baby in two. Cut the living one in two. Give half to one. Give half to the other. Now, if we think about what Solomon has just said, Isn't it the case that this is both perfectly just and perfectly unjust all at the same time? It's perfectly just, right? We have two equal witnesses, equal case, an equally bad case on both sides. And so it seems that the best we can do here is to give equal to both parties. And so Solomon does what, of course, must be done here. Cut the baby in two and give half to each. Perfectly just. But, of course, perfectly unjust as well. Because only way you can do this is by killing another innocent human being. And so it obviously won't work. It obviously can't put this into practice without doing a terrible injustice, multiplying the injustices here. It might have seemed to the people who heard this that Solomon, this wise Solomon, was something like a mad genius. Very interesting, intriguing solution, but hardly one that could commend itself 
to just people. And yet, it works. It works. Not being carried out literally as he initially said, but the effect of what Solomon decrees elicits and evokes the truth from the hearts of these two women. Solomon has found a way to bring out into the open what was secret, to make known what was hidden. Solomon has provoked these women to tell the truth in a way that overcomes the barriers of their falsehood and their self-interest. It becomes clear in the response of these women that one truly is the mother and one, the other, is not. It's not even exactly clear, I don't think, in the text which one is which. I mean, is it the woman who presented the case originally who is the mother or not? Perhaps we will never know for sure. And yet Solomon has found a way to discover the truth. In verse 28, the last verse of this chapter, we read that all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. They hear about this judgment that he has made, and they fear him. This translation says they stood in awe of him. I suppose that is a good enough translation And why wouldn't they be in awe of him? Why wouldn't they fear him? He has seen into the hearts of these women. He has brought to light what only the two of them knew, with no way to discern between the testimony of the two of them. He has found a way to judge justly when there is no external evidence to provide a basis for that judgment. Surely this is a wisdom that surpasses the rulers of his age or of any age, which was exactly what God said in 1 Kings 3, uh, verse 13. Surely this is a cause of fear. Surely this is a cause to stand in awe of this king and the greater king who would come, especially if we know our own hearts if we know our own guilt. It's easy enough for us to say, we want a king who does justice. We all want that, right? We want rulers who do justice. But then we see justice being done in this way, and perhaps we're not so sure we want a king who can do this sort of justice, a king who can see into the depths of our heart even when we don't speak it, even when we do our best to conceal it. Do we really want this sort of justice, this sort of wisdom, Especially if we are, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, those who are the weak, not the noble, not the powerful, not those with any influence, if we are those who are called into his kingdom. How can this wisdom, how can this justice do us sinners any good? Well, on our own, by our own resources, we certainly don't know the answer to this question. And yet, if we continue reading in 1 Corinthians into chapter 2, we see the surprising and the wonderful answer to this question. We read, beginning in verse 6, 1 Corinthians 2, that Christ, the wisdom of God, has come and been revealed, 
and imparted a secret and hidden wisdom of God that the rulers of this age did not understand and could not understand. There were things that eye has not seen, that ear has not heard, the heart of man has not imagined. It seemed foolish in the eyes of the world because it involved crucifying the Lord of glory. That doesn't make much sense. And yet God has revealed it to us by his spirit. This surprising, immeasurably great wisdom of God in Christ. Greater than the wisdom of Solomon. A wisdom who would find a way where there seemed to be no way. A wisdom that would find a way to do justice alongside of showing mercy to the outcasts and the destitute, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and sinners. This perfect wisdom of God in Christ shows us how justice might be satisfied while displaying the depths of God's wonderful mercy unto us. We marvel at the wisdom of Solomon on display in 1 Corinthians 3. How much more should we be amazed at the greater king, our Lord Jesus Christ, who revealed to us the depths of the wisdom of God, who did justice and who did mercy. And upon this justice and mercy and wisdom, we may rest. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have set before us the wisdom of your Son, your wisdom in Christ. O Lord, we marvel to see the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of a king who knew how to do justice even when no one else perceived a way. But how much more we sinners, the destitute and the outcasts, Sinners in so many ways, how much we marvel that your justice has been satisfied in Christ and in him your mercy has been poured out to us as well, that we might look to you in him and find rest for our souls, rescue from the oppressor and forgiveness of our own sins. We pray that you would increase our faith in him that you would cause us to walk in his ways, that we might grow up into the wisdom of Christ as we seek to live lives pleasing to you as we live as pilgrims here in this present evil age. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Copyright 2008, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.